Hi, hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Plug in Colorado. It's been a little bit, but we're back. We're back in black, as ACDC likes to say. No, we were actually out west. We went to a magical city called Reno, Nevada. Have you heard of it? Have you been there? It actually holds a special place in my heart because Andrew and I, well, Andrew is from Reno, Nevada, and the two of us lived in Reno uh, for six months before we moved to Boulder, Colorado. So yes, it is a magical place. It's a really dynamic place. There's a lot going on, a lot of yin and yang. Anyway, I recommend you visit it one day or revisit it one day because it has changed a heck of a lot since we moved out of there three years ago. It feels great to be back in Boulder in the summer. Summer is here, full on. Colorado's all in all of its glory in the summer. I have a couple plans for the summer. My plans are pretty simple. I want to run. I want to hike. I want to go in a couple pools. And if my husband can twist my arm, I might camp. But I am a novice camper and I'm uncertain about it. So I want to hear from you. Tweet at me at Plug in Colorado or email me at Plug in Colorado at gmail.com. I want to hear where you recommend a novice camper and her family go. Again, I'm not into totally roughing it yet, somewhere in between. So let me know what you think. So today on the program, we have Kathleen Armitage, who's the associate producer on the John Coltrane documentary, Chasing Train. This documentary is playing at the theater in Denver called Chez Artiste, and so you can show off to your friends, oh, I'm seeing the Jean Coltrane documentary at Chez Artiste. It's playing from June 23rd to June 29th, and my husband and I are excited. We're going on Saturday, and I can't wait to see it. Kathleen also has another amazing documentary under her belt. She worked on the 2008 Cubs documentary, We Believe. And so I hope you enjoy this conversation slash interview as much as I did, because I love picking the minds of such um, creative individuals like Kathleen. So without further ado, I bring you Kathleen Armitage. Kathleen, thank you so much for joining us on Plugging Colorado. Thanks for having me. Let's jump right into your current project, um, the documentary Chasing Train, which is about John Coltrane. You were the associate producer on it, and it was written and directed by John Scheinfeld, who also made the U.S. versus John Lennon, and one of my favorite music documentaries, Who is Harry Nilsson? And for those at home who don't know, who is Harry Nilsson? Um, he was a singer-songwriter from the 70s. He's famous for his cover of um, Everybody's Talking and Coconuts. And um, it was it's interesting because he was actually best friends and collaborators, creative collaborators with John Lennon, and they got into a lot of drinking shenanigans. And it's just a very interesting documentary. So I really recommend it to those at home listening to this. Again, it's Who Is Harry Nelson? What was my question? Oh, I think you were just, you were just starting to sum up. Oh, yeah. 
uh, John Steinfeld's career and oh, who yeah, I was yeah, working yeah. with. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, because I asked And I you, will pass that along to John that you liked it that I much. I love yeah. that documentary. I, tell, I'm, I was just emailing him today. Because I'm just like a, I'm a music nerd and I was like, finally someone made a documentary on this guy. Oh my God. I'll have yeah. to. Yeah. Anyway, so. That film did very well, by the way, for him. He was not, John was nominated for WGA. Oh, I bet. I bet. He pro- yeah. So anyway, didn't do that well at the box office. But it oh, really, it didn't? No, it was really well received, though, critically. Yeah. It's yeah. good for you that you even saw it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, a lot do of you know what it was? It. it was on Netflix. Wow, good for you. I'm going to tell him. Yeah, it was on Netflix, and I was like, someone made a documentary about Harry Nelson. Oh, I can't wait to tell him. Um, so with Chasing Train, um, it was a documentary that seems like it probably took a while to make. So um, tell us, like... I want to kind of go back to your relationship with John Scheinfeld, who you worked on with that. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you met? And so you met, but right before the Cubs documentary, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was, so it was August of 2008. I had already been working on some other project and I got two calls, um, from friends in Chicago, both recommending me for the job with him, with John. Um, and I, called John from the, or John called me from the, I was in, sitting in my car in the parking lot of the office I was already working in. And that was kind of the interview. <laughs> so, um, and I wasn't, I don't even think John knows this. I was not, um, the kind of person I, I don't think I, I think I still operate this way. I wasn't somebody that had seen everything that he had made. And so I didn't uh, talk with him in a way that was adoring. Um, John and I kind of met in terms of, I just, I approached things from, you know, what do you want me to do? And I will do it. And I will outwork anyone. That was kind of, that's kind of my thing. So it wasn't so much that I was a student of all of his work. I really approached it more from like, this is another project. I'd be very excited and, and would be, you know, grateful to work on it but it was more of like a very working kind of thing and so yeah I was just interviewed over the phone I was sitting in the parking lot of the office I was working in and then we decided to work together um after that that film um the producers um decided that they wanted to use as much Chicago talent as possible because it was a Chicago story so that was also part of the whole thing. It wasn't as if he was working with a lot of the people that he would ordinarily work with in Los Angeles. Oh, he's in LA. Yeah. Um, he wanted to work with Chicago people, which I give him a lot of credit for because it, it did add a lot of, it, it, it eased um, some of the, or greased some of the wheels for getting some things done, of course. But also I think he just wanted that to be the team. So the editing was done there. And um, it was, uh, you know, it's a small group of people. I tell people, you know, when we went to Telluride for Chasing Train, you know, we're there with La La Land and, you know, these That's big crazy. films. And then, you know, we're there. And while I think the film is good, it's a little bit of a mind shift for me. It was for me to be in that space because we have a little film that a handful of people worked, you know, on. And then you're you're in a space with films where you know hundreds of people worked on it with giant budgets. How did John present Chasing Train to you? Oh well, he called me um, in early 2015, 
and we're always looking for reasons to work together again. So, um, you just said, you want to work on this with me and you know, we need this. And so that was it. Um, we, we tend to, um, I have a sense now after working with him for a little while, what he's looking for. So there's a little bit of a shorthand, uh, in our conversations. And, um, I have a better sense of like visually where he's going in a certain direction. And sometimes we, um, have a chance to kind of collaborate over different sections of the script to try to figure out how to troubleshoot things if something's not working. Um, and that happened in a couple of spots with trace chasing train where something wasn't working and we had to kind of rework, rethink visually what we needed. So like one of the questions I have, because I watch so many music documentaries is kind of the nuts and bolts of it. Because so John has in mind that he wants to do a documentary on John Coltrane. And then he thinks, oh, I want Denzel Washington to narrate the parts that, um, John Coltrane, um, like interviews he's given or a diary, but, oh wait, I want Bill Clinton in it. And I want Carlos Santana in it. And you want all these big names. So how do you go from an idea to getting, excuse me, getting the family, especially, I think this is a really important documentary because some music documentaries or documentaries in general, you don't have the family on board. And this was one where the family was on board to provide you guys with photographs and footage. And, um, so how do you go from an idea to, um, the big picture with all these celebrities involved and the, especially the family involved, because, you know, they must be just so protective over his work and his footage and his songs and what have you. Yeah. Um, I can speak more to that question on a, a project that I'm working on and John could speak to it about, uh, some of the things he's created. As I understand it, the Coltrane project came together through his agent, um, and it, the producers that own the catalog to Coltrane's music are are the ones that put the project together. And because John has a history of working on music docs, they chose him. That's my understanding. We might need to fact check that, or I'll talk to John later today. But um, you know, we, we don't. He and I don't spend a lot of time. You know, he'll give me the whole rundown of how it came together. Um, but that's two plus years ago now. <laughs> I think I've got it right. <laughs> um, and then really pretty much from that point, John has, you know, creative kind of license to put it together the way that he would like. Um, he typically has, he did this in the Cubs doc. It's, it's in other ones too. Um, he typically has a, a few different kind of tiers, I think, or no, I shouldn't say tiers, kind of categories of people that are in or interviewed. Usually it's, you know, there's kind of the expert level, um, somebody who knows the subject really well and can kind of help structure the narrative. So like a famous sax player. Yeah. Someone like that. Yeah. And, um, even in, in Coltrane, there's, um, you know, jazz critics and, and other, uh, people that are have studied music that know how you know Coltrane went from point A to point B, right? Um, and then there'll be yeah, I think uh, people often ask about the Bill Clinton inclusion. Yeah, I think <laughs> I don't. For me, the way that it works is that I almost see him as a 
ordinary person in a way, like an ordinary fan of John Coltrane. And he also is, although I don't think his his fame plays that much of a place in it, other than, you know, when Clinton ran for office, he played the saxophone, I think, on one of those late night shows. Arsenio Hall. Was that it? <laughs> I, I okay. watch that show yes. every night. <laughs> so I think there are some people in the audience that would know that. So I think those two points of connection are weighing it up. Plus he just, he speaks as such a um, student in a way of Coltrane and such a, a loving fan. I mean, I thought, and he's a brilliant speaker, well, whatever else you know, anyone's opinion is of him. I do think that he has a, an ability to kind of encapsulate a moment and describe it in a way that very few people can in terms of history. I think he can take something and break it down into all of the the fine points and then at the end kind of tie it all together. I think he, he does that very well. And then the other people, you know, were people that Coltrane knew. Um, and then, yes, the family was involved. Um, I think the producers had arranged for that to happen. They had gotten uh, buy-in, I guess, from the family to be involved. And so with, so I actually want to go back to your role as a producer. And um, for those who are listening, because I still don't kind of understand what a producer does, because it's interesting when you're watching um, a film that a, a, the lead actor stars or the lead actors in, and you realize they're the executive producer. And then you realize there's the assistant producer and then there's the producer. And I'm not sure, like, are there different roles that each producer does or is it kind of, does, are the roles divvied out or how does that work? It's different in television than in film the roles um, in the film environment. Usually the producer is the one that brings all the money together, brings the project together. Um, the executive producer is usually the one that brings in the most funds to support that project. Um, I worked as an associate producer on this. So that uh, means that I gathered a lot of the archival material, the visual assets that are in the film, not all of them by any means, because other people were doing that too. Um, the line producer um, is more of kind of the day-to-day, -day, kind of setting up um, some of what's necessary to tell the story, uh, the interviews, um, trying to contact those people. Um, I know, for example, that a Bill Clinton interview was the last one because <laughs> he was very busy in 20. 16. Oh yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> he was on, and before that too, he's on the campaign trail. He, he had very little time, but as it turned out, as I understand it, he, he spent, I think he had offered or had available about 15 minutes and he spoke far longer than that because John has a, a great way of developing rapport and Coltrane was a subject you could see. I think, I think any viewer could see that Bill Clinton enjoyed talking about John Coltrane. Um, so, um, yeah, it depends on the project, but television is different from filmmaking in terms of what producers do. Um, Would you have any um, desire to try television, or do you think you just want to do film? Um, well, I mean, right now I am working on a couple of, of television things. Um, Are you allowed to talk about them? or? Um, 
I don't think I can. Oh. Yeah. Sounds <laughs> exciting. <laughs> I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> I, don't I don't know that you should be, but um, yeah, I, I, I think I probably better wait. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have you back. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So, but right now you're also working on the documentary, Think Big, Start, wait, Think Big, Start Small. Yes. Is that, has that wrapped up or is it? That is at the um, fundraising stage. Um, wow. That's something that, uh, that's a project that I came up with because I wanted to get into more of the producer role. Um, I don't know how it is for other people, but I mean, a lot changed um, in terms of uh, the industry and, and work and finding quality work um, through technology or the, the just, just a lot of shifts in the industry. So rather than um, kind of bemoaning those things, I thought, well, if I want to truly create something of my own, then I need to take on the producer role, which is means to become a fundraiser. Um, a totally different role for me, pitching my project. But I, I, I feel passionate about this one. So can you explain a little bit what it's about? Yeah. Um, so we want to focus on four to five uh, kid entrepreneurs that start a business in a formal after-school program, and then they take a portion of their profits and make a microloan to uh, women in developing countries, and then we want to follow one story here so that those women can start their businesses, and we just want to like follow the money. So Is this we... a program that's already developed, the program with the kids giving the microloan? Yeah, yeah. It came from a, a children's book that I came across in my, some of my educational work. Uh, it's a book called One Hen, and um, it's a, based on a two, true story. Um, a boy named Kojo takes a few coins from his mom's circle, and then he buys a hen, and then he takes the eggs to market, and he puts himself through school and university and has the largest poultry farm in Ghana. And I just thought that was such a it's a picture book. It's a beautiful wow. book, like great story for a kid, right? But to explain microfinance. So I had uh, approached the author in, uh, she lives in uh, the Boston area, I should say. And uh, I had been out there visiting my sister and my sister suggested that I go to a local bookstore and chat up the clerk so that I could get the author's phone number, which I did. And I called her that day and said, I, I want to meet you and uh, talk to you about making a TV series or a film based on the ideas in this book. So um, I had been talking to John because he had come to Chicago. Uh, the Cubs film was screening at the Music Box Theater there. And we were sitting afterwards and he said, so what are you working on now? And I said, well, I came across this book and I want to make something from it. This is what it's about. And he said, let me see that. And so... I sent him uh, what I was putting together, and the next day he called, and he said, I want to do this with you. So, um, yeah, we have a sizzle reel for it. We have raised initial seed funding for wow. it. Um, and I'm on a, a, a track to, you know, secure the rest of it because it's a – I think it's a great story or series of stories to tell now. It's about kids paying it forward. <laughs> um, it It – it shows how families thrive and communities thrive from um, these loans. And also just we want to answer the question, why do kids want to give money to somebody they don't even know? It's a little counter-cultural <laughs> 
to some other ideas that might be out there right now. Um, and I think the message is really good um, in terms of just different diff people doing something different, uh, different than just maybe um, looking out for just them, their own things or their own goals and motivations, but thinking a little bit bigger. Um, so that that's what that project's about. That's amazing. And then how is it being a producer living in the Denver area versus being a producer living in Chicago? It's a little bit different, but um, only because I probably haven't done my work of uh, digging in a little bit more. Um, in Chicago, I have, you know, I was on the board of women in film. I was very active in the community. Um, there are about three or four organizations there that really kind of drive the machine for uh, work and kind of the networking part of it. Um, and I still maintain a lot of those relationships there and having just moved here uh, a little over almost two years now, year and a half ago, um, I'm still in the process of kind of finding some of that. Um, and trying to, you know, I find that producers also, you have to kind of create your own opportunities sometimes. Yeah. And, um, so for, if, if those listening want to become a producer, do you have any recommendations? Because it sounds like you just went through like a roundabout unconventional way of getting to where you are, but you know. It, but it sounds like you just worked hard and you had a little bit of a vision of where you were going. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think now it's very different from when I started out. Um, just by example, you know, you can put together your own show and you can put it on YouTube and develop a following that way and get noticed if the content is something that somebody else is looking for. Um, and you can do that with a, a video program. You can do that with a podcast. Um, I, th I think there's a lot more opportunities that way, but at the end of the day, it's really got to be great content. I mean, it's really got to be a good story to get somebody's attention. And I think it's finding that where is that, um, kind of razor's edge where you're, you're rubbing against something enough that it gets people's attention and also isn't going to distract them or de detract them from what you're doing. You know, anybody could put something together that's provocative or violent or something like that. I don't necessarily think that's the way to go, but I do think that, you know, you do have to kind of, you have to ask the right questions in what you're producing. You have to put something out there where people are, are put a little bit off balance by it maybe. Um, and also forces themselves to ask questions. And I think right now, just in film, um, I don't know if you feel this way. Do you feel like we're living in such um, a very amazing, I don't know what other word to use, like amazing time in filmmaking? Because I, I go to the movies. I just saw Wonder Woman, I just want to say. And I was, I've never seen a movie like that. And partly because... I've never seen a movie with a female superhero and just so strongly identifying to a movie with a, a superhero 
And um, because my husband, Andrew, who's the engineer, he's always asking me to go to see all these Marvel DC movies. And I get through 30 minutes and I'm kind of like looking at my watch, maybe checking Instagram in the movie theater. But this was just, I went with my girlfriend and I was on the edge of my seat and I was bawling at the end. And I was like, this is just... I mean, I saw Moonlight in the last year, La La Land, and all these just amazing movies. Um, and I just can't help but like listening to you talk, realize just what a fantastic time we live in to be in film. Do you agree? I think, I think, yeah, I think something's kind of cracking open where there's different voices coming in. I mean, when, when the technology became available for more and more people to be able to tell stories in this way, you, you had the great benefit of that, but then you also have, I think, you know, maybe hobbyists, maybe they thought they would like it, but then once you get into the nitty gritty of it, like if you have to sit through an edit session in an audio or, you know, video film, you know, capacity, that's a very tedious process. And that's where the, you know, the devil's in the details. I mean, that's where you really see that where the craft comes together. And I think what's happening now is that the technology has been out long enough and the people that really want to stick and stay with it are the ones that do feel like they have something to say. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, that's what it's about. I think for people that are, you know, have a creative bent, you you have something you want to say and you haven't yet found the vehicle for that or the opening for it. And I think what you're describing are some of those other voices having a chance to get out. And that's why I think some of the storytelling, whether it's television or film. Yeah, is- television as well. I am just wowed. I feel I feel so embarrassed how little when someone brings up a show of being like, I can't believe I haven't seen that. I can't believe, you know, just over and over because there's only, there's only so many hours in a day and only so much free time one has. And just, I don't know, for me, I'm, I'm not able to binge on a Saturday just because of the kids, but, um, just how much I have to catch up with and with how much great television there is. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't think you're alone. I, I tend to do like my own little sampling because I can't, I just, and, and the formats have changed. So it's not, you know, so many episodes and they all have to be this long and there has to be some finale, you know, or even a final episode, you know, all of that has kind of been thrown out and, and that has opened up the, the narrative structure and the possibilities and that's what I think we're we're starting to see is yeah. like the limits of time put certain constructs on how and a story could be told, and and now all of that is kind of wide open. So I think that, in addition to the opportunity for different voices to come in, I do think it's a very rich, creative time. Sometimes I feel like it's very saturated. Um, do you mean because there's too much good television, or there's too <laughs> much going? Through um, our television systems or? Well, I, I don't know how, I can only speak for myself, but just on a daily basis, I like to keep up with certain news-worthy kind of subjects, and then I try to keep up culturally with other things, and there's only so much time yeah. in a day. Yeah, exactly. I, I, um, I'm grateful that for the good stuff, but it's finding the good stuff yeah. that can sometimes be a challenge in both regards. Yeah. I think for me, like also there's only, you know, I know I'm going to get a lot of emails or tweets. I could like, I haven't watched Breaking Bad 
and I'm I'm so embarrassed because you know you'll be socializing, you and it's the whole you haven't watched Breaking <laughs> Bad and. I know once I jump into Breaking Bad, that Breaking Bad's going to be my life (laughs) and I'm not going to have any other life other than Breaking (laughs) Bad because I'm a runner and like I try to just do other things other than watch TV. And so I don't (laughs) know because you can't, (laughs) you can't just dip your toe into a show like that. And also it's talk about, it's a show that seems like from what I heard with a lot to say and a creative edge, but I'm not sure how much emotionally I can take from that show because I hear it's just, you're, you want to just like stand on the edge of the cliff and jump like after each episode and you feel so emotionally heavy. Yeah. I think I kind of liken it to, I always thought that like the cereal aisles in our supermarkets were just overwhelming. Like how, how do we have so much cereal? Like why do we, <laughs> it overwhelms me. I think that we're in a similar place with some of what's available. You just got to find what you're looking for. What's healthy for you. Do you have a TV you know? show like my breaking bad? I, I, there's many shows I haven't <laughs> seen, but what I do, you know, because there's that, I, I can't attribute the saying to who said it, but that like, if you open a novel, you should be able to open it any place in, in that book. And it should, the writing should be indicative of the whole piece. Yeah. You should I be able to open it up that. and it should be very compelling no matter where you pick it up. I think the same is true for other creative pieces too. <laughs> you have to, you you know, you have to find like that slice of something. And if, if that little piece is compelling, then I think I would watch the whole thing, but I tend to just kind of sample things cause there's just not enough time. And some things I don't, I just don't know that I would have an interest in anyway. I, I don't know if it's Bruce Springsteen, but let me say, you know, love the art, not the artist. I think some of that over, um, exposure, overstimulation, a lot of information is helpful. And then I think in another way, like having all that advanced knowledge can affect your experience of watching the piece that you're going to see. So sometimes I get interested in those things too, like, oh, you know, oh, I didn't know they were doing this or this is happening here. Um, Because it's process stuff, right? Right. And so as a creative, you're interested in that part too. Like, how is this coming together? And why are they in this location? And I wonder what, you know, why is she in that role? Oh, okay, that makes sense. Or, Like those sort of process questions are kind of fun as a creative. Um, But we do consume culture very differently. Um, And I don't know what that means. I don't know if it affects your ultimate experience with the final piece or not. Right. when you have that kind of background knowledge in terms of, you know, watching like a whole body of something at once. When you're, when you're doing your own, um, documentaries and especially the one you're working on, do you have to make the people that fund it any promises that I'll go to this and this film festival and it'll be shown on this and this many screens, um, or or other promises? Um, not we we try not to um make promises like that because if I, I guess if anyone were to promise that they wouldn't say they're being um dishonest but you don't know you don't really have a, a lot of control over that um 
you can put together a strategy and a business plan and, and all of those um, really great structural pieces that keep you on track with dates for certain things, build relationships in certain ways so that you can get a chance to have your film shown at these places. Um, but every film's different too. So that, for example, some um, you have to think about, you know, if you want this to be more of a, a, a return on investment in a financial sense, then you would set up what your goals are for distribution differently than a film that you might want to have make sure that is in every U.S. public school or is oh, at every thought yeah. leadership conference in the world about this particular subject. Um, those are kind of don't have to be mutually exclusive, but I think you have to think about what your end game is as you're putting the project together because every every film is different. Like, you know, a film about the U.S. education system might not necessarily play very well in Europe because right. that audience isn't you know, it doesn't really affect their daily life. A film about John Coltrane, that has a, a wider audience because there's a lot of different parts of the world that are crazy about his music. Um, so each, I think each one is different. So when is your, for, um, is it Think Big, Start Small? When is, what are some um, goals you have in mind date-wise? Have you found the kids that are going to be in it yet? We have, um, uh, been following stories through some of our strategic partners that have these after-school programs. Our vision is to have stories told from across the country. So Boston, Chicago, I would love to have uh, Denver represented yeah. in some way and uh, a city on the West coast. Um, it just will speak, uh, to the audiences that we want to get to once the film's out, not just be, you know, one region. Um, we also have a plan to incorporate and involve the organizations as we're putting the project together. So that, in other words, we're not going to wait for our outreach until after the film is done. We have a process in place to keep people involved throughout the whole thing. We see it as a very community uh, uh, connector, um, something that could get people maybe out of their houses, have the parents take their kids to see the movie. We see that kind of a potential for it if we tell the story right. Um, so Kathleen, you mentioned before in the Finding Train documentary that there's kind of a script you have. And how does that script change um, while fim filming the documentary? And what role as a producer do you have? Because I feel like you know, things might come up randomly during a documentary and change. So as a producer, do you feel like you have to be on your toes a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I worked as an associate producer and I don't, I think the processes were different for the Cubs film and chasing train. Do you want to speak on behalf of maybe the yeah, Cubs film? Well, then? I was going to, the, the, the Cubs film one is a really good way to explain how it sometimes can work. So, you know, we were on a track following that team the whole season and they were doing very well. And so the ending that we all had in mind was that the Cubs were going to win the world series that year. Well, now our entire team that had been working on the film, we were crushed. I mean, we didn't talk to each other for about a month because no one knew what to say to each other. You, we were ramped up 
the whole year for this one ending that was not happening. <laughs> so we, no one talked to each other and no one knew how John was going to end the film because here we are with this completely different ending. And so no one spoke, no one worked on it for about a month. And John had to kind of rewire his brain or whatever he had to do to figure out how am I going to end this film? And so he ended up taking some of the interview footage that he had shot earlier in the year and finding a, a different way to come to come some conclusion for that story. Because the film really was asking the question, why do people in a city follow a team that hasn't won in a hundred years? That was the question we were attempting to answer. So it was a lot more about the city and the people and how they follow the team and, and what the character is of the city. So the city was really kind of the character in a way. Right. Um, and, and we had to, you know, we had a lot of discussions after that month about different ways to kind of end it. But ultimately John, you know, came up with that. I don't know how he did it for Coltrane, but there were certain sections that I know had to be reworked um, because they just weren't, um, to the people that were giving input, the producers on uh, his end that he was showing it to and others, you know, he'd get notes back and there's just certain sections that weren't, you know, coming through as strongly as they should be. And in that case, I was glad, you know, John had called me and said, let's rework this section. Do you have any ideas? We have to figure this out. So is it like a puzzle you have to put together and you have to figure out the piece that needs to go yeah, in a particular because, spot? Yeah, because if it's, um, you know, if there's if there's a section in, in a film that isn't resonating or it's hitting a point a little bit too hard and it feels like it's throwing the rest of it kind of off balance, you feel like it's um, it's not on good footing. And so that was what was happening. There was a section that was just, you know, where do you want to have the beats in the narrative so that you have a nice rhythm and you're keeping people engaged and the laughs are kind of in all the right spots. And I mean, that's part of the fun too. It's part yeah, of the reason I, I, I do this is when we had the Cubs film screen in Chicago at the Chicago theater, which if you've never been to it, I highly recommend you go. It's a great place. You could feel the energy in the room as certain scenes were being played. Like it was almost like a wave that you're riding. And then like somebody in the corner will laugh at a place that you wanted to laugh. And then somebody over here will laugh at something that you hadn't anticipated. And it's one of the greatest feelings in the world. I mean, that was a while ago that that film came out. And I still am riding that, just sitting there and feeling that. It was incredible because all of it, there's like five people that have seen that cut and then you show it to 1800 yeah, and you're wow. like, are they going to like it? They might yeah. not. It's very, you're very nervous because you really are making it for, you're making it for the audience. Yeah. You're trying to put together and something. Especially like, that particular audience. Oh yeah. That was very studied about the Cubs and they would have found any error. Yeah. <laughs> that we I didn't made. even think about that part. So, you know, you want to create a great experience. And it's the same thing with Chasing Train. The first time I had I'd seen a cut, an earlier cut last summer, but the one that I saw on Telluride, I had never seen before. Wow. So when I sat there, I was like, oh, my God. You know, you get, there's a great energy to the audience. So back to your point about how we consume media, 
you know, you do it on your own binge yeah. watching. There's some value to that, and it it can be a rewarding experience. But I I still kind of hope <laughs> that people want to have the shared experience of an audience because for somebody who makes the stuff, you know, that ends up can end up there, it's so rewarding because you're you're making it for them. You know, we try to find things that nobody's seen before. That's part of our goal. I think in particular with the Cubs documentary, you're making this documentary for Chicago. You know, it's like Sex in the City. They always say Manhattan's the fifth character. So you're having Chicago as a character. But they, as the audience who is well-studied and well-versed on the Cubs, they know that it's going to end in tears. And I think what I just put together, the interesting part about documentary, making a documentary must be, like you said, just filling it with just a lot of juice and a lot of fuel because you have to get the people on the ride and you have to have them stay on the ride because at any minute they can step off the ride. And so I couldn't even imagine how challenging that is, especially with um, people who are baseball fans like the Cubs. And I could imagine also the Yankees because these are like two Mm -hmm. huge, you know, baseball dynasties. And so the pressure must've been so immense on you guys as producers after they lost. And to just think of like, how are we going to keep them in their seats? Um, keep them kind of entertained through it when they know that it's going to end in heartache. That's true. Wow. I, <laughs> you, you made me feel it in a different way. Oh, I'm but sorry. No, no, no. It was good. It's actually really, really good. And what you, I like what you said about fuel because it is a lot like that. I mean, um, cause you're making the ride go yeah. and you want them to stay on, but they really can jump off. It's true. And it's also, you know, a documentary. So it's, it's not for everyone. Not everyone seeks those films out, and that's right. fine. They, they, there are other things that they like, um, but yeah, you, you, we do think that way. I mean, there, and it speaks also to the, our culture, our collective culture, our history of of media, where there are sounds and there are sights and there are photos that people have seen over and over again right. through other things, and so when you're doing anything that is any historical subject matter, we try to find stuff that no one's ever seen before. One, because it's fun. It's a treasure hunt. It's happened, in my experience, a handful of times. Can you explain one of the experience, maybe in the Cubs documentary, where Um, you're like, wow, wow, this is it? Yeah, it... Well, the Cubs won. We still think that somebody has footage in their basement of the 1908 World Series. We just didn't have enough time to find it. So, Can you I, explain what happened in the 1908? <laughs> well, they won. Okay. And so, yeah, okay, yeah, that sorry. was the last time they won. And so, I I mean, I still have this little little pain in my, you know, gut that I, I didn't find it in time. You know, I still think it's out there. Like, somebody has it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just don't know who it is. Um, I can explain on the Coltrane film one piece that was really fun. Um, we were trying to find funeral photos. Oh, for interesting. F- yeah. And and there there are some available, but we wanted something wanted to see if we could find something different. And so I had been digging and digging and digging, and it is a process of digging and inquiry and 
going down the rabbit hole and then forgetting where you are and then coming out <laughs> and then you find something else and then you say, oh, well, maybe I'll go that way. And, and then you sometimes you do get somewhere that you weren't expecting to go yeah. and you find something great. And so I had found something online, a photo, and ended, it ended up tracing back to the Jazz Institute in Amsterdam. And they had a, a collection of photos from Coltrane's funeral. And the story was that the photographer of those photos was, um, he was like a courier for airline. I think it was Lufthansa. And the only reason that he wanted that job was so that he could go to New York and listen to jazz. And I thought that not only spoke to his passion for jazz, but just how important that music must have been for that time that someone would do that. Because there were other stories about people from that period that felt that level of interest and fascination with those musicians. I had heard and talked to some of those people. And this was just such a perfect example of that. I mean, he, the only reason he had the job was so he could go to New York and listen to this, these musicians. I thought, wow. Well, he had, the photographer had passed away. And so his wife was still, she's still alive and she had, um, or has, I think early stage Alzheimer's. So we, I ended up getting permission from her through an email and she was so very grateful that these photos were going to be used. But those are photos that no, as far as I know, nobody knew were around. And so they're in the film. That was just a great treasure hunt find. Um, there's and other... he left us pretty early. He was 40? Yeah, he was. Yeah, wow. exactly. And, and I was thinking about, I also read that there wasn't a lot of interview footage of Coltrane. So I couldn't even imagine making a documentary because it's a lot of audio. Because um, for those that don't know, he also played with Miles Davis. And so you have like, were you able to get a hold of Miles catalog too of music? Um, yeah, they must have gotten that yeah. through the, so, yeah. So you have like a huge catalog of music, but then you don't have a lot of visual footage of him. It's true. Yeah. Um, in fact, I did a talk back at the art center in Boulder for this film and someone asked about, you know, the interview footage of Coltrane and I, I gave an answer and I, I, I hope that that person believed me, but it's true. There, there wasn't any existing television footage of him being interviewed. Oh, there was none. Yeah. Okay. Or whatever was found, the quality wasn't oh, uh, good enough, especially from an audio point of view. Um, and sometimes it's funny when you work in like video production and other things, people think of just the video and they don't, you know, what you're doing now, the audio is, as, as important. <laughs> um, it's very, you have to have, you have to have a, a certain level of quality. So, um, yeah, so there wasn't anything that we could find that okay. was going to work. Is it Alice? Is his mm -hmm. wife Alice? Did his she just wife. die? Not no, she's too a, recent. Um, she's, last, cause uh, she was a, she was a singer. No, she was a musician. She was a piano player. She was a piano yeah, player. Very, yeah. Well, very well respected piano player. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of another, but he was married before her. Yes. Those guys, you know what, just a side note, like, like, um, just the New York jazz scene is so fascinating because they were 
babies. They were so, and then they died so young. Yeah, like Charlie Parker. Yeah, yeah. how old was, was 30, he 34? 34, I know, isn't it? And just like, they were just, they did so many drugs. Yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> did, yes. Coltrane was a heroin addict. How mm-hmm. did he die? Liver cancer. Jeez. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, but another story along the lines of the searching, mm-hmm. I didn't do this part, but um, John wanted to be sure it was relayed. Um, so he was in New York, and um, I had you do kind of reconnaissance. So in other words, you you get in touch with many maybe some of the photographers that had um, photographed at the jazz clubs yeah. or the album covers, and some of them are, the photographers are still around, and there's a handful of them, and we get these discussions going about, you know, this is the project that we're working on and what do you have? Oh, I have this, you know, and try to set up dates so that the, maybe the line producer and John can go out there and they can really look through what they're looking for because there's such a volume of material or it's, it's in files, you know, it's not digital. (laughs) In other words, you need to go there and look at what they have. So we set up this trip and John and the line producer went to New York and met at this photographer's house and they were going through all of these, you know, negatives and, um, weren't finding much that was different than what they had already had. And so, you know, this, that happens frequently and you have to decide, well, how much more time am I going to spend digging through this before I really find something? So they found one photo and there was a, someone in the photo that had a, a, a camera. And so John showed it to the line producer and said, he's holding a camera. So that must mean that there's footage somewhere of this. So that set them on a track to contact, um, the, it was another musician. I can't remember the musician's name had the camera. Um, and he, um, passed away. I think they found, figured out in 2007. So then it's like, okay, now what? So, but they found his son and he was, uh, or is an insurance broker. I think he lives in California and they called him. And he said, oh, yeah, I have all that. It's whole movie footage in my garage. So they arranged to go pick it up and they mine through it. And oftentimes when you do that, you get what you would expect to find. It would be like vacations to Niagara Falls or birthday parties, things like that. You go through a lot of that stuff. But then they found footage of that recording session. I think it was Ascension. And, um... So it's Coltrane and all the other musicians, and it's not particularly well shot, um, but it's something that nobody's ever seen before. So um, that's in the film. That's in the final Chasing Train film. That's, yeah. So with um, John, does he, because it seems like making a documentary, or even with yourself, is so all-encompassing when it comes down to the shooting part and kind of um, going through archives of people's work, are you able to work on anything else or is your life just so say like all encompass? Are you just focused on one documentary at a time or one project at a time? Well, for, I mean, I, I, we work on different things at all at the same time. So at any one time, I can't speak so much for John, but I, I mean, I have an idea he does what he does too. Um, but for myself that you're out pitching projects, maybe working on something currently. Um, 
and 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 maybe there, there's projects that you're pitching and that you're trying to, and everything's kind of a horse race. You're trying to see which one's further along, and then once that one hits and you have the funding, then you go with it, and the other ones kind of fade oh, to the background, and then you kind of come back to them because, I mean, as you can imagine, you know, documentary filmmaking is not necessarily very lucrative, so you have to figure out ways to kind of make the lifestyle work. Um, and then for me, when I'm working on something, I'm thinking about it almost all the time. I There's never enough time in the day. I feel like there's always something else out there that I'm not finding, and it's there, but I just haven't gotten there yet. You're kind of a treasure hunter. It's <laughs> A little bit? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, even today or yesterday, it's the weekend. And I have, I could be looking at this stuff tomorrow, but I'm thinking, well, yeah, a couple of hours, maybe I'll, maybe I'll get somewhere wow. and find this one thing that nobody's ever found before. It's kind of a slight form of madness, probably, I bet. <laughs> to think that way. But you, you want to find it. You want to get that thing, you know, you want to get it. So Kathleen, do you want to tell our listeners where we can find you, websites, if you do Instagram or you want to share that, Twitter? Sure. Um, so for our Think Big Start Small project, it's a sponsored project of the International Documentary Association. So we are on the IDA website and on there is our sizzle reel and the website for that project. And then also Chasing Train is screening um, in Denver at Shea Artiste. Um, here at Plug in Colorado, we always end the episode by asking our special guests the same question. So Kathleen, what is one of your favorite things or places in Colorado that others might not know about? I think I'm going to have to choose, um, where my husband and I were married. <laughs> um, it was up North of Fort Collins near Red Feather Lake. Oh, beautiful. And, um, the vista up there is so, it's not as strikingly um, beautiful maybe in the traditional sense of seeing the Rockies, but the way that the mountains and the sky and the different bands of color form up there with the clouds, I don't know. I, I have photos of that area before I got married, and the background looks like I'm standing in front of a painting. Like, it doesn't even look real. Like I'm on the deck of our friend's home and in the background is are the mountains and the skyline and the different bands of color and the clouds and it looks it just looks fake. <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't even look real. So when I look at those photos, I just think that it's just such a, such a gorgeous place. Yeah. Well, Kathleen, thank you so much for being here on Plug in Colorado. Thank you for having me. That was super fun. Guys, that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow us on Twitter, and visit our brand spanking new website, Plugin Colorado. Also, feel free, rate us on iTunes. Five is a really great number, so go to iTunes, look up Plugin Colorado, and rate us. Our theme music is by the Boulder band, Carry Me Ohio. Our engineer is Andrew Morton. And I am your host, Deanna Morton, reminding you to plug in Colorado. We'll see you next time.